Well, another of the themes and topics that your organising committee wanted me to speak on was the one of sexual desire, and that's what we're going to do in this session. As we uh, begin, I just want to recommend a book on the bookstall, uh, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert by Rosevere Champagne Butterfield, which must be one of the greater authorial names that I've ever seen. I wish I was called Champagne Butterfield rather than Hardiman. It, it is really, it's certainly the first half of this, a really amazing book about the most unlikely kind of convert. Um, a lesbian professor of English studies who was the faculty advisor on, I don't know whether they would call it queer issues or something like that, in a liberal arts college in America. Um, had a long-time lesbian partner, I think was an atheist, and then through a uh, friendship with a pres- local Presbyterian minister, becomes a Christian and renounces lesbianism, gets married. It, it, the first half is just an amazing story and so instructive on how people construct sexual identity, the barriers they put up against God and how God can overcome it. The second half becomes a kind of exploration of a certain kind of uh, Presbyterianism, which some of you may find more interesting and instructive than others. As a Baptist, I read it with a certain detached interest. But the first, <laughs> the first half is really pure gold, and uh, I, I, I just think it's a great book. We're thinking about sexual desire, and the message is basically this. And as in so much of what I do in the book of Proverbs, this comes from uh, uh, Ray Altland and his work, and his commentary on Proverbs is there on the uh, uh, bookstore for you. Uh, it's not on the bookstore, sorry, it's on the book list uh, for you to look at. Uh, and if you want to take Proverbs further, I'd certainly uh, commend you getting into that, because I think it's brilliant. Um, the message basically then, and this, is, this is, uh, owes a lot to Ray, is this. Sexual foolishness destroys, sexual wisdom satisfies, and Christ is better than the best sex. Sexual foolishness destroys, sexual wisdom satisfies, and Christ is better than the best sex. Proverbs is interested in every part of our lives, and we've seen uh, that we need to interpret it as the Lord Jesus Christ, as our infinitely wise and infinitely loving counsellor, coach, and advisor, speaking to us through his own inspired words and wisdom. And because it's interest in every part of our lives, that includes the areas of all our kinds of relationships and uh, the area of romantic love and of sexual desire. And Proverbs talks a lot about sexual desire. Just think about desire in general for a moment and how we have desires which are God-given and how we have to control them. Several years ago, we went out with a family for a walk by the river in Cambridge, which is a very pretty place to be, and then we thought we'd have lunch in a pub called the Green Dragon, and we went in, and we had our first course. I think my son had steak, and maybe my daughter had gammon. I can't remember quite what it was. And then we looked at the menu for the puddings, and they had the kind of normal range of um, normal kind of puddings. And at the end, they had this kind of mega jumbo pudding, which seemed to have a bit of everything. It was a kind of vast cookie base, and with that, you've got ice cream, you've got marshmallows, you've got bits of Mars bars, you've got chocolate sauce, and several other things that Debbie and I couldn't remember when we were trying to recall it earlier. I mean, it was almost like a kind of meal in sugar in its own right. It's absolutely vast, completely enticing. Well, we resisted it. The desire to be able to fit into a pair of trousers I'd bought two years earlier and not been able to wear overcame my desire for this monster ice cream, this monster pudding. Proverbs talks about desire. So Proverbs 13 and verse 12 has something interesting to say. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Yeah, we've got it up there, haven't we? Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Proverbs recognises that it's hard to have unmet Desires, And that when our desires are unmet, there will be a sense of incompleteness, of frustration, and of longing. Very real about that. It's the point of the proverb. And one way or another, we have to deal with that. The modern way is not to allow desire to go unfulfilled. It's just to act on it. Remember William Blake's poem, song as it is now, Call it a hymn. It seems quite right to me that we used to sing it at my school. Uh, Jerusalem, bring me my bow of burning gold. Bring me my arrows of desire. 
Bring me my spear, O clouds unfold. Bring me my chariot of fire. Blake was all into the fulfilment of desire. He had his own collection of proverbs, actually, the proverbs of heaven and hell. Uh, I'm not sure the heavenly bit of most of them. And one of them says this, Better murder an infant in its cradle than nurse an unacted desire. Better to murder an infant in its cradle than to nurse an unacted desire. For Blake, as a proto-romantic, the restraints of the kind of classical culture of the 18th century were to be thrown off, and we were just to, uh, ner- uh, just to um, uh, act on all of our desires. He said it's better to go out and, and just kill a child than to have a desire you don't act on. That is the culture which we are in. If you've got a desire, you should simply fulfill it, not restrain it. But Proverbs would say that desire needs control. So chapter 19 and verse 2, we've got that up. prefer the ESV at this point. Desire without knowledge is not good. And whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. We need knowledge. We need wisdom about our desires. And if we just act on them, well, they're not going to be fulfilled properly, actually, at all. There's another proverb about desire, chapter 21 and verse 25. The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labour. This is the opposite. It's acting on a desire to do nothing. And actually, our society in its wiser aspects recognises that it is important to be able to restrain desire of all kinds, including sexual desire. That's why it's illegal to have sex in public or before the age of 16. And there are other aspects of legislation that put constraints there and expect people to conform to them or face criminal prosecution. Now we come to the dangers of sexual foolishness and how sexual foolishness destroys them. And quite a lot of this early part of the book of Proverbs, do you remember from um, chapter 1 to chapter 9, is a series of introductory poetic exhortations getting us into the theme. But quite a lot of this is in this area, the area of sexual wisdom and sexual unwisdom, sexual folly. And there's a series of case studies and examples and exhortations just about getting this right. Remember, it's addressed to a young man because it's a father giving his son advice, but actually it applies to all of us. We see here the way that sexual foolishness and the indulgence of sexual desire in a foolish way, how it destroys us. It's really a case study in extramarital sexual relationships. And the young man is being warned about the danger of being seduced. If you look at verse 3, the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey. Now, this is not a kind of anti-women diatribe. It just happens to be addressed to a man. Actually, in many ways, um, uh, the danger is, can be almost worse with men. And women need to be warned about the dangers of men because men tend to have a stronger sex drive to start with and a tendency and an ability to impose themselves. It's just within the way Proverbs is set up, it's addressed to a man, but it's certainly not saying that women are the danger and men are the kind of innocents who might be preyed upon. The other way round would very much apply. And the danger here is of the apparent attractiveness of extramarital sex. The lips of the adulterous woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil. If we turn over to another section, which is similar in chapter, uh, chapter 6, verses 24 and 25, there's, um, there's a command, of, verse 23, to keep us from our neighbor's wife, from the smooth talk of a wayward woman. Then he says, do not lust in your heart after her beauty. Do not... Let her captivate you with her eyes. Is that eyelids? Is it the lashes? Is it the flushing of the eyes? Is it their innate beauty? See, we're affected by physical appearance and physical beauty. We tend to think that our 
our physical response to that is all that matters and that we should simply act on that. Then in in, in chapter 7, we see this very long drama of how someone is led astray uh, into uh, extramarital sex. Look at verse 6, chapter 7. At the window of my house, I looked down through the lattice. I saw among the simple, I noticed among the young men, a youth who had no sense. He was going down the street near her corner, walking along in the direction of her house. At twilight, as the day was fading, as the dark of night set in, then out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute and with crafty intent. She is unruly and defiant. Her feet never stay at home. Now in the street, now in the squares, at every corner she lurks. She took hold of him and kissed him, and with a brazen face she said, Today I have fulfilled my vows, and I have food from my fellowship offering at home. So I came out to meet you. I have looked for you and have found you. I've covered my bed with perfumed linens from Egypt. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let's drink deeply of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. My husband's not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took his purse, filled with money, and will not be home until full moon. With persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. All at once, he followed her, like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose, till an arrow pierces his liver, like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart turn to her ways or stray into her paths. Many are the victims she has brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is a highway to the grave, leading down to the chambers of death. There's a mixture there of brazenness, verse 13. Some sort of religious content. Oh, I've done all the religious things. I'm clean. It's okay. God will surely want us to enjoy ourselves. Notice the sensuality of verses 15 to 17. The fabrics, the perfumes, the scent, the whole scene that's been created. And then the killer argument in verses 19 to 20. No one will know and it won't matter. Isn't that so often the voice we hear when we're tempted to indulge in some form of extramarital sex, whether on our own or with someone else. So many people believe that. Sex outside marriage feels good. There's nothing wrong with it. No one's going to know. So what's the problem? We should not restrain our desires. That's just going to make us feel unfulfilled and lonely and incomplete. But actually, all three of these chapters show us different aspects of the danger if you turn back to verse, uh, to verse 3 and 4 of chapter 5, it sounds so good, the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she's as bitter as gall, and gall is that bitter, foul-tasting substance, as sharp as a double-edged sword. The danger is getting drawn into something that will turn sour in a horrible way and will harm you. Chapter 6, verses 27 and 28 Puts it very vividly. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burnt? We talk about playing with fire. This is a very vivid image of that. Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. How does it work then, the the destruction of sexual foolishness, of being foolish about sexual desire. And I think at one level, if we're Christians, we kind of know that, but deep down, do we really believe that? It can seem rather arbitrary, especially in a culture like ours. And, you know, if you weren't Christians, many of you here who were unmarried would certainly have uh, had sex with several partners by now and may well have been thinking about the next weekend when you might meet one or more other partners. That's the culture that that we live in. Notice the way that the woman who is seductive is called the adulteress, or in chapter 6, the wayward wife. And again, in chapter 7, verse 5, the wayward wife. 
I think that's very instructive. And we must remember, again, that this is not just about women. It could easily have been a man. It just happens that the whole conceit, the whole setup is of a father instructing his son. It could have been the other way around. It's not, not anti-women as such. You see, the woman is wayward in Proverbs 6 and 7, not just from her husband, but from God. She's doubly adulterous. That's the point. The covenant has been broken. Not just the covenant that she has with her husband, but the covenant she has with God as well. And her relationship with God is seen and described in covenantal terms and in marital covenantal terms. That's why she's an adulteress. That's why she's wayward. Why should we keep to biblical sexual morality? Why does biblical sexual morality, why is it wisdom uh, to stick to it rather than foolishness? Why is foolishness destructive? Because covenant relationships matter. And sex is the physical expression of what it means to be in a covenanted relationship, which is stable and faithful and permanent. David Atkinson, his Bible speaks today on Proverbs, says, to say physically I'm giving myself to you, while emotionally and spiritually holding back from a covenanted rela- uh, commitment, is in fact to live a lie. A split in the personality, which is ultimately stressful and destructive. Another writer says, marriage speaks of an absolute faithfulness, a covenant between radically different persons, male and female, and so it echoes the absolute covenant of God with his chosen, a covenant between different partners who are brought together in this committed relationship. So sex outside of marriage is about unfaithfulness to God. And because we live in God's universe, that brings all sorts of bitter and destructive effects. So look at chapter 5 and verse 9. We need verse 8, really, don't we? Keep to a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you lose your honour to others and your dignity to one who is cruel. Can you hear the possibility of exploitation there? the psychological scar tissue of being had and used. You see, sex isn't intended as a language for strangers, but covenant partners. When someone exploits that in you, it's a horrible feeling. Look at verses 11 to 13. At the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. You will say, how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or turn my ear to my instructors. I was soon... Now, leave verse 14. It leaves a nagging sense of guilt and regret. Sexual foolishness just leads to these burdens. There's a famous saying of the poet Byron, who was a fairly sexually omnivorous and uncontrolled character. He wrote, My days in the yellow leaf the flowers and fruits of love are gone. The worm, the canker, and the grief are mine alone. What he's saying, as someone has said, is, I'm 36 and it feels like my life is already, at, already over. All I've got is an STD and depression. Then look at the negative social consequences of uh, sexual foolishness. Verse 14, I was soon in serious trouble in the assembly of God's people. David Atkinson says, in any healthy society, adultery is social suicide. And it's a mark of the unhealth of our society that it isn't in the same way that it was. Now, they can be very Victorian and prig and self-righteous and no doubt in all sorts of ways there was dysfunction in that. But it isn't social suicide in the way it once was. But in the assembly of God's people, it is. And then look at the final consequence, 21 and 23, which is eternal death. Your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all your paths. The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them. The cause of their sins hold them fast. For lack of discipline, they will die, led astray by their own great folly. In the end, the folly, folly with sexual desire, sexual folly will lead you into 
spiritual death. What does this look like in practice? There's a book published a couple of years ago, edited by Guy Brandon, uh, who's a Cambridge researcher, which tries to make a case based pragmatically, interestingly, for a biblical sexual morality rather than a worldly sexual morality. That's not the only way I'd want to do it, but it's an interesting exercise. And he has a couple of case studies that are quite instructive. These are all real people, actually, because, uh, because he was a Cambridge person. We were reading through these anonymized case studies and realized we recognized one or two of them, but uh, that's uh, by the by. And one of them was about a lady who used to be in our church. His husband was an elder, and her husband left her for a junior work colleague. And she wrote about it in this way, um, uh, calling her husband Mark and his new wife, his adulterous partner, Sally. And she wrote, Mark and Sally's pursuit of absolute freedom trampled upon all in their way. Their marriage eventually fell apart following further affairs by both. Sally moved country. Her own children have only a little contact with their mother and have expressed to my children their hatred of what she did to their and our family. The collateral damage is impossible to quantify. That's a woman sadly reflecting on her husband's affair and the shattering effect it had all round. How many of you are not married? You may be saying, well, it's sort of casual sexual fling or a bit of sex with a boyfriend or girlfriend that I'm not yet married to may not have the same effect. Again, this, uh, this book quotes another case study. This is someone I didn't manage to work out who they were, but that doesn't matter. It's a woman called Kate, age 28. She says, I don't remember the first time I had sex. A mixture of cocktails, beer and vodka made sure of that. It's a frightening reality that an act I have no conscious recollection of still affects my life today. Although I didn't realise it at the time, I'd turned a corner and there was no way back. It was not until I was married that the continuing effects of that transition became apparent, and I saw that the only way out was a painful journey through. After my first time, it was surprisingly easy to have sex. It became an assumed and enjoyable part of my life, alongside eating and sleeping. I rarely questioned my actions... When I did analyse it, it was merely to allay my fears of getting pregnant. My husband-to-be was a virgin who wholly accepted me despite my track record. Before we got married, it seemed we'd left the actions of the past where they belonged, in the past. But it was not to be as easy as all that. For one reason or excuse or another, we managed not to have sex on our honeymoon. Looking back, I'm amazed that we missed or managed to ignore the early warning signals. Needless to say, the tension in our marriage mounted and presented itself in many deferred ways. It was only after several years that we were able to untangle the threads and discover what the real issue was. My interest in, not to mention enjoyment of sex, I put down to tiredness. We put my husband's growing self-consciousness and insecurities down to his felt inadequacy to meet mounting work responsibilities. Why should my previous private actions between two consenting adults follow me into our marriage and be able to cast such a dark shadow over it? This is the question I've repeatedly asked myself. My answer may seem unsatisfactory. I don't know why, but I know that they did in a tangible way. As I said earlier, the only way out is through. My husband and I attempted to reason our way through our increasingly turbulent marriage. While listening to teaching on God's love for his physical creation, the truth hit home. Our physical and sexual distance had informed and exacerbated our emotional and even spiritual distance. I realised that my previous sexual experiences separated from a holistic, committed emotional and spiritual relationship had created a chasm within me. This division I had transported into our marriage, where it festered and threatened to destroy my and my husband's sense of being, as well as any chance of real intimacy between us. As Brandon says, even recreational sex is not consequence-free. Sexual foolishness destroys us. That's the point of Proverbs. So where does that leave us with our sexual desire? Well, Proverbs would say, find fulfilment in the right place. It does, after all, say in chapter 13 and verse 19, a longing fulfilled is sweet to the soul. 
And it also recognises the dangers, or the difficulty, the difficulty, I might say, of unfulfilled desire. So chapter 13 again and verse 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Unfulfilled desire is difficult. That means that simple suppression is not enough. We need something more than that. We need to find fulfilment in the right places. I've heard this quote, I think, from several places, but it's directed uh, by a pastor to someone who is addicted or troubled uh, by uh, a compulsive use of pornography. And the saying goes like this. It says, worship got you into this, and it's worship that will get you out of it. A longing fulfilled is a tree of life, Proverbs says. The tree of life is the imagery of something good happening to you, something life-giving that you can reach out and eat from. It's an image from the Garden of Eden. It's a symbol of life with God. It's a symbol, therefore, of our desires being fulfilled in what God has given us and in God himself. Our second point is then wisdom about sexual desires satisfies. And that means focusing our desires on what God has given us. And so we come to chapter 5 and verses 15 to 20. Because the God-given place for the fulfilment of sexual desire is in marriage and in regular, active, intoxicated (coughs) marital sexual relations. Now, this is a highly erotic passage. There aren't many like it in the Bible, perhaps this and the Song of Songs and maybe one or two hints elsewhere, but there isn't a lot. Not because the Bible doesn't, uh, because the Bible disapproves of uh, the right kind of eroticism and sexual love, but perhaps because nature doesn't need all that much help in the written word of Scripture. And so just one or two passages are enough in validating it. I remember when I was a student, uh, we had a little debate in my college. They, they had this little college debating society they wanted to get going, and I think they, they wanted the first one to draw a crowd. So they announced the motion was going to be this house, this house disapproves of premarital sex, I think it was. And um, I was one of the Christian union leaders, and uh, they thought they would get me along, and they put up against me this guy who was a brilliant, brilliant debater, much, much better speaker than I was or am. He was funny, he had them rolling around, he had them in the palm of his hand. It was, it was just amazing. Then I got up and uh, I started off by reading Proverbs 5, verses 15 to 20. And as I read it, there was this sort of little snigger when we got to the bit about may your fountain be blessed. And you, you could see they thought that I hadn't spotted the kind of sexual imagery of it. And they were having this slightly guilty, smutty little laugh at it. Um, thinking that I was always being very innocent. And I simply got up and I said, you're absolutely right, this is entirely about sexual imagery. God thinks sex is great, and then tried to make my case. The funny thing was, we won the debate. This guy was a far better speaker than me. And I'm not sure actually anyone was that convinced in their minds, but there was something about the attractiveness of seeing true human eroticism portrayed within the right boundaries that just for that moment those people those students found just compelling I suppose and so they put their hands up and to my amazement we won God's remedy for sexual thirst is a healthy sex life within marriage as someone has said your wife or husband is your own personal and private fully approved wellspring of sexual satisfaction verse 18 may your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. Of course, this is the prayer of the father for the son. I wonder how many parents have even thought of praying that way for their children. It makes me feel sort of blush slightly at the very thought of it. My parents fairly inhibited about sex. But if the father figure in these early chapters of Proverbs stands for God himself as our father, as I'm sure he does because he's so idealized, then, as someone has said, we can imagine God our Father raising his hands in blessing over our marriage blades. Look at how he addresses his son. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. He seems to look ahead to the time when the son may have been married for a while. To the same wife, because he's been faithful. 
He's not changed her like going to a new supermarket or getting a mobile upgrade. It's the wife of his youth that he is to rejoice in. To rejoice in, actively to work, to delight in her and her appearance. Look how he describes her in verse 19. A loving doe, a graceful deer. I'm not sure, ladies here, you'd be particularly flattered by that comparison, would it? As one friend of mine put it, I hunt deer. (laughs) And there's a biblical commentator, Bruce Wilkie, who uh, talks about the use of animal imagery for erotic writing. You find it in the book of Song of Songs as well. He said he had great difficulty identifying with that culture of imagery. Until one occasion, he was somewhere high on a mountain in the Middle East, and he came in contact with mountain goats. And he says, I observed their bright black eyes, their graceful limbs, and their irresistible silky hair. Oh, isn't that sweet? But by the second line, we're clearly out of the metaphor and back to the human body. May her breast satisfy you always. Isn't the Bible just so straightforwardly human and practical here? I don't know if you know the film Notting Hill, when uh, the Julia Roberts character and the Hugh Grant character kind of wake up after their first night together, and Julia Roberts says, what is it about men and nudity, particularly breasts? How can you be so interested in them? Now, I'm not going to try and answer that question, nor does Proverbs. (laughs) But Proverbs recognises the interest. And it has something practical to say to us. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, the expert on us guys, the expert on our inner desires and what stirs us. The Lord Jesus Christ, our counsellor and coach, saying, yes, you have those desires and focus them on one place and one place only. And so for married men, excuse me, but the married guys need to hear this. That desire is to be focused on one pair of breasts and one pair only. By drinking to your fill in them. And if you're unmarried, you just have to wait and not focus anywhere else. Now, at this point, uh, you know I'm English. English people are quite inhibited. I'm home counties English, you know. Middle class, public school, very uptight kind of family. Didn't talk about sex. So my inhibitions are being stretched to the limit. I don't know about yours, but mine are. (laughs) And, you know, to preach this properly, you don't want an Englishman, especially a home counties one... (laughs) You need someone French or Italian or Spanish. (laughs) Now, the next line steps back from the specific detail, and some of us may be grateful for that. But look what it says. May you ever be intoxicated by her love. And immediately the the thought is intensified. And again, we're longing for a preacher who's Latin rather than English. But all you've got is an Englishman. So here in English, mildly embarrassed way, here it is. May you be ever captured by her love. Captivated. Love. Ever. Captivated means intoxicated. There's no disapproval here. But it is used in other places of of kind of a sheep wandering, going a bit astray. And someone has said the suggestions of being wandering in a deliciously dazed way into the ecstasies of lovemaking. Someone else says that the inhibition, the the, the father admonishes that inhibitions be left behind in the marriage bed. And this is to be something which is always true, ever, always. Notice that pair of words. The blessed wife's lovemaking should always be available to drench and intoxicate the thirsty husband, and vice versa. We sometimes shock uh, married couples, uh, engaged couples, when we do uh, premarital counselling, uh, marriage preparation with them, and particularly if they're inclined to have slightly over-idealised, pious views, and I, I like to shock them, and I say, actually, you know, the Bible says more about the need for husbands and wives to make love to each other regularly than it does about them praying regularly together. Remember one girl who really couldn't cope with that at all, but it's, <laughs> that's right. Now, there are lots of qualifications. There's the monthly cycle, there's illness, there's aging, there's menopause, there's tiredness. The principle of consent on both parts is very important. It's not a charter for married blackmail uh, kind of rape uh, situations. There may be difficult experiences to work through, uh, sexual differences that need gentle exploration, even third-party help. Sometimes people will come back from a honeymoon and need to talk something through with us. There's a recognition of different temperaments. Husbands, basically, most husbands only need a place for sex. 
wives typically need a reason. And a very good thing too. And the more the more animal-driven side of men, which I think has been released and exacerbated by the fall, is constrained by something else. Here is a part of the reason. Proverbs 5. And the other part is love, service, communication, verbal and emotional connection, a sense of partnership in life. But we shouldn't dilute the command. Husbands and wives, sexual wisdom is about keeping our hands off other people and keeping our hands on our husband and wife. This is our God-given worship to prevent us being sexually foolish. But most of us here, I suspect, are not married. And so what does this say to us? Well, it gives you some instruction on what married life is to be like. And that, I hope, will be helpful if you are to be married one day. But I do realise there's a danger in my coming across is in terms of what Bridget Jones calls the smug marrieds. Anyone remember that from Bridget Jones? The smug marrieds who are insufferable. And I, 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 I honestly recognise there is that danger in a married person like me talking on this passage. We need to realise the passage also talks to us about vigilance with sexual purity. And that's very important. The principle is there. Verse uh, chapter 5 and verses 1 and 2. Pay attention to my wisdom. Turn your ears to my words of wisdom that you may maintain discretion. Discretion in this area. And then there's some specific things over the page. If you look at chapter 6, a similar set of commands from verse 20 about holding on to these commands. And in verse 24 keeping you from your neighbour's wife from the smooth talk of a wayward woman. Do not lust in your heart after her beauty, he says. And for both married and singles, that's very, very important. The control of the inner life. You can't control your first thought or reaction to something. Those things are instinctive. But you can your second and your third. And we need the kind of early warning systems that will prevent us developing these inner lives which... Um, which are just consumed with the wrong kinds of things. Notice uh, verse 24, not straying into her paths. Physical location matters. Since I've been at my church, two guys in the congregation have left their jobs because of the use of uh, porn on their computers at work. One of them gave up his job because he's in this room programming all day and he, he just didn't have any safeguards. And so he just thought he had to leave. Another one got sacked. For it. Physical location matters, not straying into her paths. And there are wise self-management choices that we have to make. Not choosing to inflame sexual desire, avoiding the kind of influences that will do that. Staying clear of the kind of things that we may see or hear that will lead us into the wrong paths. Watching our sexual purity. But actually, it's more than those sets of guards. Those guards are very important, but it's more than those sets of guards. We have to say to ourselves, clearly and firmly, over and over again, that sexual foolishness will not satisfy us. Negatively, because it will destroy us. And positively, well, we come on to our third point here, which is that Jesus is better than the best sex. Jesus is better than the best sex. Russell Brown was on Newsnight a few years ago, and it was, it was an amazing encounter with Jeremy Paxman. And at one point he says, someone told me that all our desire is the desire to be at one with God in substitute form. So perhaps we can draw attention not to the shadow on the wall, but to the source of the light itself. That's Russell Brown. Yeah, I think he's absolutely right. Jesus is better than the best sex. So chapter 8 and verse 11. Wisdom is more precious than rubies. And nothing you desire can compare with her. And notice that wisdom is what Jesus says to us. It's the words of Jesus to us. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Then look at... Chapter 7 and verses 1 to 5. Or actually, we'll go to verse 4. 
Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and to insight, you are my relative. They will keep you from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman, with her seductive looks. Another translation says, you are my sister. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend. It's personifying wisdom. Wisdom will keep us from sexual failure if we develop this sense of it satisfying and having a personal relationship with us. That's the Old Testament picture. And then in the New Testament, it's developed in a way that the Old Testament only saw in a very shadowy uh, way. It's again that Jesus is our wisdom. In Christ, Colossians 2 again, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. That means then that Jesus is more desirable than anything else. And we must find our joy in him. And you know, we all need this, whether we're married or not. Because both sex outside marriage and sex inside marriage can look for ultimate fulfilment and wholeness in the wrong place. There's a song by uh, the soul singer Marvin Gaye called Sexual Healing. It was uh, uh, very highly rated. The lyrics go, Sexual healing is something that's good for me. Whenever blue teardrops are falling and my emotional stability is leaving me, there's something I can do. I can get on the telephone and call you up, baby, and honey, I know you'll be there to heal me. The love you give to me will free me. If you don't know the thing you're dealing, oh, I can tell you, darling, that it's sexual healing. You're my medicine, makes me feel so fine, helps me to relieve my mind. Sexual healing is good for me. Sexual healing is something that's good for me. I'm afraid that that fine song, though it is in some ways, is just not right. Yes, there is something marvellous and refreshing and binding about sex. It's God-given. But actually it doesn't heal us. It's Jesus that heals us. The real sexual healing is in the cross of Christ where all our sins are forgiven, including our sexual sins. The best friend for sexual fools is Jesus Christ, not a sexual partner, even one within marriage. The real meeting of desire is in Jesus Christ. Sexual folly destroys sexual wisdom. Yes, it will satisfy, but not ultimately, because Christ is better than the best sex. You young single folk. You may just have this view of sex, that it is just the most amazing thing, and if you're not having it, you're going to miss out, and that you know, it's this kind of ultimate thing that's being withheld from you by your Christian convictions. And that if only you could get married, then so much in your life would sort out. You could ask, I think, any Christian married person, and I would bet a penny to a pound they would all say the same. Yes, sexual Wisdom satisfies, but Christ is better than the best sex. And Jesus is so much better than even the best sex. In a book called The Undivided Widow, written by a woman who lost her husband, she says, as wonderful as marriage is, it is a picture of something far greater and far more to be cherished. Our relationship with Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6 And verse 17 says, anyone united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. As Ray Ortland says, Jesus has given himself to you completely. You give yourself to him completely. That means you become one spirit with him. And Ray puts it this way. Being one spirit is more profound, more intimate, deeper and richer than being one flesh with another human being. Again, Carol Cornish in The Undefended Widow. This is someone who's been married and had a sexual relationship and then lost her husband. She records one of her prayers. I praise you with my whole heart for who you are and for how you have steadfastly shown love to me. You know what I'm feeling in my grief. You suffered the loss of your one and only son so that sinners like me could know your love. You've not left me alone. I'm not desolate. I'm not without someone who loves me, for I have your love, the truest and most steadfast love ever. And then recognising that this is not something that you deal with by one decision, but a a continued pattern of coming back to Christ for satisfaction, she says. Oh Lord, I pray I will be satisfied in you alone. My soul holds tightly to you. It follows after you with intensity. For clinging is a result of cherishing. I am thankful for your nearness, for the precious gift of your presence with me. 
A longing fulfilled is sweet to the soul. And we need to see that our longings will be supremely satisfied in Jesus Christ himself, whether or not we are married. And that with him we will not be alone. There's a great song by Bruce Springsteen, imagining uh, uh, someone who's got into early middle age, going back to the girl of his childhood dreams and inviting her to leave town with him. It's called that Thunder Road. It's quite a moving song in lots of ways. And there's one line, pair of lines that goes like this. He's pleading with her. And he says, don't turn me home again. I just can't face myself alone again. I think so many of us, that's how we feel. Don't turn me home again. I need to be with someone. I just can't face myself alone again. Actually, if you're a Christian, you don't have to face yourself alone again. Because married or unmarried, you won't be alone. And there's plenty of loneliness in marriage as well as outside it. Jesus will be there, your treasure and your prize. Now, in this life, our desires are never going to be satisfied fully, even by Jesus himself. That's the nature of living in a fallen world before his return. But they can be more satisfied in him. And it's important that that both married and, and single people do this. Married and engaged folk, we need to give ourselves entirely to God and to our other half while recognizing that God is perfect and our other half is not. And in sexual and emotional and relational and other ways, the other half will let us down just as we will let them down. There's a sense in which we all marry the wrong person because we're looking for someone who's perfect and they aren't perfect. Whoever you marry will not satisfy you in the way that you hope. And so if you do marry, you'll still need to keep focusing on Jesus as the source of the fulfillment of your, uh, of your, uh, of your desires. But one day those desires will be satisfied. And if you're unmarried, you can give yourself today entirely to the one you will marry one day, which is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. When all our desires will be satisfied in him, our longings will be fulfilled in that great tree of life, and the fulfillment of those longings will be sweet to our souls. It's hard for people who would love to be married and find that, for whatever reason, they aren't married. None of you here is much beyond 30 or 35, I think. I know women in our church and men too who are in their 40s and their 50s. I mean, people in their 60s who would love to have been married and haven't been. It's been a hard battle with their unfulfilled sexual desires. And one would recognize that as well as their relational ones. But do you know not one of those people will get to heaven and find that they're not satisfied? And in every area that there has been loss in this life, there will be more than compensation and the ultimate fulfillment of desire in Jesus Christ in heaven for billions and billions of years. And no one's going to turn around and complain at that point because the ways they've trained themselves to honour God through focusing their desires on Christ in this life will be met by a greater capacity to enjoy Christ in the hereafter where no one will be married and there will be no more sex. Now, we're almost done, but we need to come back to the area of of sexual foolishness. And remember that verse, I think it's chapter 13, verse 12 or 19. A longing fulfilled is sweet to the soul, but fools detest turning from evil. What's the evil you need to turn from? The indulgence of sexual desire within in an unhelpful way. Some of us, that's more based on physical things. For some of us, it's more based on romantic things. But either can be quite evil. The bitterness, the resentment, perhaps. Are you going to be a fool? Are you going to detest turning away from that? Or are you going to be wise and turn from it to Jesus instead? You'll have to forgive me for quoting from my own book. But actually, this isn't a quote from me. It's a quote from a friend of mine. And for a while, we used to meet together regularly. And uh, it took him a while, but in the end, he confessed that he was struggling a great deal with the use of porn online. And we worked together on it. And when I was writing the book, I asked him to sum up 
what had been helpful for him in that battle, and he did so in words that I quote. However much I tried it, the willpower of just don't look at it never worked for me. I could go for a few days and then the hole left just had to be filled. But then God made me realise that my choice was not simply between looking at porn and not looking at porn. It was between desiring Jesus who would satisfy or desiring something else that wouldn't. The struggle didn't become easy then, but it did become winnable. That's such a great phrase. The struggle didn't become easy then, but it did become winnable. Because I realised I had to choose, not just to walk away from something, but to walk towards someone. Let's pray. Lord, we want to acknowledge and admit before you our own sexual foolishness of different kinds, things we've done or things we've wanted to do, attitudes we've nurtured and fed that have been a departure from your will. We confess our own sexual brokenness, each one of us, Lord, including me. And we want to walk away from those things and to walk towards Jesus. We pray we may find fulfilment of all that we need in him. We pray for one another, Lord, that we may be holy and righteous, that we may experience forgiveness when we lapse and walk with you more closely. We pray for the help of your spirit. We pray, Lord, for one another that we may be able if, we, uh, if it's right in your will to meet husbands and wives and uh, marry. Uh, for those who are single until then, Lord, keep us pure. For those who are going to be single for a while, may there be a settled sense of satisfaction in Christ. But Lord, we thank you that you draw near to us in our brokenness. That you come to us as our healer, our coach, our counsellor, our expert, our genius. You come to us in our unwisdom, in our foolishness. And you make us whole and bring us somewhere better, which is in you. For your name's sake. Amen.